What is your biggest fear? Mine, from time to time, shows up in various forms of a nightmare. Typically, in those types of bad dreams, I've usually lost uh, a loved one, usually my wife or uh, one of my children. I've somehow been cut off from the people that I love. And I find myself overwhelmed with sorrow. I imagine most of, if not all of us, have had different versions of this nightmare of loss. As we walk into Exodus chapter 33 this morning, we're going to witness Israel living their nightmare. As they will lose that which is most precious to them. The main idea this morning is that happiness is found only in God's presence. We're going to work through the text in two parts. The first 11 verses under the heading of separation. And then 12, verses 12 through 17 under the heading of restoration. I'm going to pray and then we'll set the stage a little bit and get into the text. Father, your voice causes knees to knock, hairs to stand up, and spines to tingle. We ask that you would speak to us with it this morning. Pray that you would cause our hearts to beat a little bit faster. That you would impress upon us the seriousness of these moments when we hear from your word. Father, you have spoken to us about matters of eternal importance. Help us not to take them lightly. Lord, we are fickle people with wandering hearts and short attention spans. Pray that you would focus our attention on you. And that despite our forgetfulness, that you would encourage us with this truth. That even though we might forget your word, it still shapes and sculpts us after your image as it hits us, as we listen to it. Help us to hear well this morning. Help us to know you more deeply, more intimately. And let it be to the increase of our joy and your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let, let it, let's set the stage a little bit here. God has drawn Israel out of Egypt in order to draw them into relationship with himself. He's called them his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. Israel was united to God through that covenant wedding ceremony in chapter 24. And Moses has been up on the mountain receiving instructions with God about how he and the people can live in right relationship with one another prior to their taking hold of the promised land. And all the while, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving these instructions about how the people can properly connect with God, they, at the base of the mountain, begin to make their own God and try to connect with him on their own terms. The people forge an idol. God interrupts his conversation with Moses and tells him as much. And Moses goes down the mountain to bring God's judgment to bear upon the people. The Lord brings justice to those who refuse to repent with the sword. 
And then he disciplines with plague those who do repent and return to him. And uh, what we learn in that picture is that sin is deathly serious business, that it, it separates from God and that it must be dealt with. Israel's sin would have brought much more than just simple plague or death by the sword. Had Moses, God's chosen mediator, not as the psalm says, stood in the breach and prayed for them. And so now we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 33 of Exodus, and we are entering into kind of a continued conversation between Moses and God, and it's centered on these ramifications of Israel's betrayal. They've disobeyed, and their disobedience is not without consequences. And so we read the Lord speaking to Moses in verse 1 of chapter 33. Go, leave here. You and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you, and will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. God is saying to Moses, I've got some good news and some bad news. And I'm going to give you and the people what I promised. I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey, the, the whole nine yards, despite your sin. But the bad news is this, I'm not going with you. Because if I do, I might just kill all of you. So let's deal with the bad news first. God is not going to be with Israel. I mean, this is readily seen in the text before he even says it when he refers to an angel in general rather than the angel of the Lord who was promised back in chapter 23, who we argued was the pre-incarnate son of God, who would represent God's very presence among the people. He's not going now. It's going to be a generic angel. We also see uh, some language that shows God isn't going to be present with the people, right? He refers to Israel as the people rather than my people. And all of this language is intentional because while God is going to fulfill his promise, he's going to do it from a distance. Why? Because he is holy. Because he must punish that which threatens the well-being of his creation. He must punish sin. And his holiness will consume sinners like a fire consumes branches. You can think of it a little bit if you're familiar with the uh, Greek mythology, uh, the story of Icarus. He has those awesome wings and he can fly around and do kinds of cool things. And he flies too close to the sun and then his wings melt and he dies. It's not a really happy story. At any rate, Israel likewise has God's blessing. But if they come too close to him because of their sinfulness, if they enter into his presence, they will be destroyed. I mean, we saw a little bit of this back in chapter 19. Remember with Mount Sinai, they had to be concerned about not even touching the mountain, lest the Lord's presence break out against them. He's holy. Now, now what are we to make of God's holiness, this idea that he might, might kill you? Like, if I, if I go with you, I might kill you. Well, we're not to see God as a petulant child, right? That's not how this works. It's important to note that as we see uh, throughout the entire Bible, and as we see here in Exodus, God is often described to us in human terms. 
uh, the fancy word for this is an anthropomorphism, right? You can say that if you want to sound cool later around the dinner table. What would you talk about in church? Uh, anthropomorphisms in the scriptures, right? Uh, it just means that we take uh, human attributes and we give them to God, right? That's how he's chosen to reveal himself in Scripture. And so how he accommodates himself to our limited understanding is by describing himself in ways that we can relate to and understand. And we're people, and so we relate and understand people best, right? And so what, what we need to realize is that God uh, has not, he doesn't have the same sinful emotions as we do, right? When he, he decides to destroy somebody, it's not because he's lost his cool but because he responds to sin with perfect righteousness. And so it's actually dangerous for him to stay with Israel. He wants relationship with sinners, but the sinful cannot live with him because he destroys sin. And so here's the situation. God married Israel in chapter 24 as his people. And then Israel in chapter 22, which we read last week, committed adultery on their honeymoon. And now, because of their betrayal, to stick with our illustration, God is going to live separately from his people. To put verses 1 through 3 in contemporary terms, God is saying, I'll give you the house, the car, the neighborhood, and the bank account. I'll provide for you, but I will not live with you. Is this good news? God's blessing without God, is it good news? Sadly, I think to some the answer is a resounding yes. This is what I wanted all along. And this is actually what a lot of people want. The benefits of a relationship with God without any commitment to God himself. They'll take the name Christian, put a Jesus fish on their car, listen to Christian radio, and drink from a sentimental coffee mug, but in reality care nothing for Jesus or his church. They prayed a prayer once to be forgiven and to escape hell. But in truth, they have no interest in the God of heaven, just heaven itself. Church is partly to blame for this epidemic of counterfeit Christians because by emphasizing the benefits of the gospel rather than the God of the gospel, the church has baptized and affirmed the salvation of many who simply prayed a prayer once but remain dead in their sins. I think together the church ought to repent of this sin. If we are to honor Christ with our fellowship, then we must guard our fellowship by preaching a gospel that demands following Jesus with our whole hearts and our whole lives. After all, the church doesn't exist to distribute get-out-of-hell-free cards. The church exists to display the glory of God. We must make clear what makes the good news of the gospel good. And it's not that we get heaven or that we have a, a better life right now. No, the good news of the gospel is that you get God. What makes the gospel great is that we get Jesus. I love this quote from St. Augustine, or Augustine, sorry, mispronounced the name. He says, if I were to ask you why you have believed in Christ, why you have become Christians, every man will answer truly, for the sake of happiness. Augustine knew enduring happiness and deep satisfaction are found only in knowing God. 
in knowing him truly. And so here's, here's the point. God's blessings without God are actually curses. They're not worth anything. God is not worshipped. If you're after God's blessing or the benefit of knowing God rather than God himself, you are not worshipping God, but stuff. And God is not worshipped where he is not enjoyed. Listen, I, I love football. I'm glad it's fall. Really glad, actually. Yesterday was great. Got to enjoy some of the games. Some of you are hurting from some of the games. But if I enjoy my Saturday afternoon in front of the TV watching football more than I enjoy God, then I have a worship problem. God is not worshipped where He is not enjoyed. And no one is a Christian who does not embrace Jesus gladly as His most valued treasure. Did you catch that? I'll say it again. No one is a Christian who does not embrace Jesus gladly as his or her most valued treasure. John Piper writes, The tree of faith grows only in the heart that craves the supreme gift that Christ died to give. Not health, not wealth, not prestige, but God. Test yourselves here. There are many professing Christians who delight in God's gifts, but not God himself. And in so doing, prove themselves unchristian. Here's a good litmus test. Would you want to go to heaven if God was not there and only his gifts? Again, deep down, I think the answer is often yes, because we love other things too much. And we love Jesus far, far too little. There's a little bit of that rich young ruler in us all. To, to our shame, there are times when we prefer God's stuff to God himself. We prefer to hold on to the empty things of the world rather than selling everything to follow Jesus. I wonder, what are you tempted to love more than Christ? And how will you put it in its right place beneath his feet. Church, we must correct our hearts when they long to embrace anyone or anything other than Jesus as our most valued treasure. This is Israel's great sin, is that they love other things more than Yahweh. I mean, despite the fact that God has been pouring his heart out, they reject him. Think about it. God handpicked a man to act as his deliverer and mediator. He opened the powers of heaven against the Egyptians. He brought heaven to earth for them in the form of the law and the tabernacle. Yet no sooner than he does these things that the people reject him. They become fickle. I mean, in the golden calf of Exodus 32, the previous chapter, it's not just a story of the people's rebellion against God, but of their rejection of what God has been planning and working out since the time of Abraham. It is a rejection of God himself. The people embraced something, someone, this counterfeit God, as their most valued treasure rather than God himself. And now, in Exodus 33, God is essentially giving them what their idolatry said they want. The promises of God 
without God himself. Verses 1 through 3 here are the undoing of the first 31 chapters of Exodus. At this point, we should be realizing that there is not any good news in these verses. It's all bad news. Because God's blessing without God is a curse. It's judgment. And we read about God's wrath being expressed this way in Romans 1. Listen to what God does with those who have exchanged the truth about him for a lie and worshipped created things instead of him. Romans 1.24, just the first part. God delivered them over in their cravings, delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts, gives them what their hearts want. And their hearts are described earlier in the passage as dark because they reject God. See, dark hearts are the source of dark living. By giving people over to the cravings of their hearts, God, as an expression of his wrath, gives them over to the sins they desire. I mean, from the perspective of the sinner, they have the good life. They're happy. They're perfectly content with the way things are going. But from an eternal perspective, they have nothing. Sure, they have all the trinkets this world has to offer, but their happiness is a lie. It's an illusion. It's temporary. It's fleeting. Understand this, God giving anyone the good life, that's a life filled with everything they think they want, without giving them himself, is a terrifying act of judgment. Tim Chester says it this way, we're nothing without God's presence. We have nothing without God's presence. The greatest judgment of God is his absence instead of his presence. That's what hell is. Israel understands that happiness is found in knowing God alone, in his presence. They understand that him saying, you can have the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you, is a terrible judgment. And that's why they respond the way they do in verse 4. When the people heard this bad news, I love the way ESV does it here. This disastrous news, this disastrous word, they mourned. And they didn't put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. That's like throughout the rest of the wilderness experience. They don't wear jewelry. You're like, why do we care that they took off their jewelry? Um, It's because people's jewelry and their other finery, like nice clothes, um, by removing it, it was a symbolic act of repentance. Uh, In the ancient Near East, mourning tended to involve appearance, not just attitude, right? So that's why in the Bible you'll see people like tear their clothes and put ashes on their head and stuff in order to mourn. That's what's going on here. Appearance is related to uh, what's going on inside of them. And so the people are responding lightly, or rightly. They understand that God's blessing without God is not a good thing. They're longing for his presence. But because of their disobedience, God is taking his presence from them. And they have a new status quo. 
which is explained to us in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I mean, this must have been a somber and eerie scene. I mean, imagine standing outside of your tent next to your neighbor, watching Moses quietly go outside of the camp, away from the rest of the people, to meet with God, who, if not for your sin, would dwell in the center of the camp. I mean, imagine listening for and watching his footsteps until he finally disappeared into the distant meeting tent. And upon seeing the presence of God fall onto the the tent of meeting, worshiping God from afar, when you could have been and should have been worshiping in His presence. And what a poignant reminder of the fruits of idolatry. Idolatry, rather than bringing us closer to God, takes us further away from Him. Israel's attempt to control God by connecting with him on their terms resulted in a great disconnect from him. I mean, this is the cruel irony of this sequence of events, is that they had made a golden calf because they wanted God to be right there with them. But now, because of their sinful idolatry, he's not going to be with them at all. God must now connect with the people at a distance in a simple tent that pales in comparison to the tabernacle. Instead of dwelling in the grand palace-like structure of the tabernacle at the center of the camp, God will dwell only with Moses in a tent outside of the camp. I mean, the distance between the meeting tent and the people of Israel is not an accident. It's intentionally picturing the separation between God and his people. It's showing us the rift in um, physical terms. It's showing us the spiritual rift in, spirit, in physical terms. I'm not going to try that sense. I got it all messed up. There's separation between God and them because of their sin. But because of God's unrelenting kindness, he still interacts with them through Moses. Moses still takes God's word to God's people. And we read in verse 11 that God speaks with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. This is remarkable. Before we talk about it, however, we have to quickly resolve some tension Because if you drop down to verse 20, I mean, here we're told God speaks to Moses face to face as a man with his friend. But if you skip down to verse 20, you read, God says to Moses this, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. This seems a bit problematic. However, it really isn't. Uh, The same author pens both verses. And it obviously didn't trouble him, right? Didn't need to smooth it out at all. Uh, Face to face is no doubt an expression of intimacy. It's not to be understood literally, right? 
means that Moses and God shared direct and clear communication, that their relationship was deeply personal. Moses and God were friends like Jesus and the disciples. Uh, R. Allen Cole agrees, commenting, Numbers 12.8 helps explain the meaning of this phrase. This is what is written in Numbers 12.8. God speaking. I speak with him, that's Moses, directly, openly, or if we were to translate it more literally, I speak with him mouth to mouth and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. See, God will speak to Moses mouth to mouth or, or face to face, that is to say not in dreams or visions or in a way that's convoluted, but clearly and directly. I mean, that is amazing. I think some of us think how amazing it would be to hear from God clearly and directly, to know his will and his heart and to be called his friend, to know him like this. But if you're a Christian, this is exactly what God has done for you. He's spoken to you directly and clearly in his word and in his son. He's told you his will, shown you his heart, called you his friend, allowed you to know him and the happiness that's found only in his presence. No one has greater love than this, Jesus says, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus calls those who obey the gospel his friends. Everyone and anyone who hears the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and submits to him as Lord is his friend. If you are here and you don't know Christ, don't miss out on this opportunity for the greatest of all friendships. Jesus laid down his life so that you might know him as your friend, as your God. In his monumental book, it's one every Christian uh, should read. It's rough at points, but it's brilliant. Uh, It's a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He writes this, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. To know God is to be his friend, just as Moses was. To to know God is to worship him by enjoying him and living in his presence. Friends, to know God is to know happiness. for this reason that Moses pleads for the people in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if indeed I have found favor in your sight, please teach me your ways, and I will know you and find favor in your sight. Now consider that this nation is your people. Then God replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Verse 14 can literally be translated there as my face will go with you. And so again, we see this idea of someone's face being with you, uh, being related to presence, not to be understood literally, right? God doesn't mean like a disembodied face is going to float next to Moses as he goes along. Not what he's saying. Saying my personal and intimate presence is going to be with you as you go. 
And that is ultimately God's response to Moses' request in 12 and 13. I think Moses' request could be paraphrased this way. Uh, You've told me to lead this people, but I can't do it on my own. I need to know who's coming with me. Teach me your ways and help me to know you. I can't do anything without you. I think we can relate to Moses' predicament a little bit here. Often in life it seems uh, that what God calls us to and desires of us is too much for us. And the truth is that it is. Thankfully, God often gives his people more than they can handle so that we might learn the truth of John 15, 5, where Jesus says, you can do nothing without me. Sometimes God crushes us beneath the weight of our burdens so that we might learn to cast them upon Christ. When we try to live by the unbiblical notion that God won't give us more than we can handle, we misplace our faith in ourselves and our abilities rather than in our King. You can handle nothing without Jesus. It's when you recognize your weakness that Christ makes you strong. It's when Jesus bears your burden for you that you are able to stand. So hear, believe, and do what Psalm 55:22 calls you to. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Don't be shaken. Don't try to handle all that life brings you on your own. It will crush you. Instead, give it to the one whose power is made perfect in your weakness. Let God sustain you. Let God empower you. Let him handle the trials and the difficulties of this life. Let him handle the easy things and the hard things because he's sovereign over all things and you can do nothing without him. Moses, still longing for God's presence and hoping that God will direct his steps, has already received a response from God to his request in verse 14, right? He said, help me, I need some help, I can't do anything without you. And God says to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But notice how Moses responds to this in verse 15. If your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. Is Moses hard of hearing? Has he done what some husbands do uh, to their wives when they're talking and just checked out? Not that any of us know what that's like. Now Moses, he's not checking out here. Notice in verse 14, God promises to be with you. That's you singular. God is promising to go with Moses, but not the people. Remember, as we saw last week, uh, Moses is more concerned with God's glory than his own. And so if God will not go with all the people, Moses doesn't want to go at all. Moses says, please don't make us go uh, without you. When I was thinking about this passage, this is a weird illustration, but you'll just have to work with me a little bit. Uh, My son Elliot, I don't like to use personal illustrations, but I couldn't pass this one up. Uh, Elliot is three now, as most of you know, and and a little crazy. Uh, But since he was born, Chelsea has tried to get him to adopt like a cute, cuddly, stuffed animal as like, one, like his best friend kind of deal. You know what I mean? So she's put those things in the crib with him all the time from before, like as soon as he took breath, he had stuffed animals around him. She tried teddy bears and frogs, 
and even a panda bear. I mean, she worked really hard on the panda bear. We picked it up when we were in China when he was like five or six months old. She really wanted him to love this thing. Kid could care less, right? He's got all these stuffed animals, but he, he doesn't like any of them. Now, sometime in the past six months or so, I don't know exactly, uh, someone, I don't remember who it is, she probably does, uh, but someone got him this miniature peanuts set. It's like bath toys, uh, and I say peanuts like Charlie Brown peanuts, right? And in there was like this tiny little Snoopy doll. He's plastic. Elliot loves this thing. I don't, I don't know why. There's no rhyme or reason to it. But it goes everywhere with him. In the van, to the playground, to the restroom. I mean, perhaps uh, the, the most annoying place that Snoopy goes, though, is he has to go to bed. If Snoopy is not in bed, we can't go to bed, right? Elliot does not want to be in bed if Snoopy's not. He will not rest if Snoopy is not resting. I think likewise, Moses is going, I'm not going without you. I'm not going to rest without you, God, until you give your presence to all the people. I will not go. Moses doesn't want to move without God's presence, without God's guidance, not only for himself, but for everyone else. And he shows us a great example in this. So he, he is really loving the people. And, and as I contemplated this aspect of the sermon this week, I, I thought about Moses is seeking the people's joy as his own. Right now, and I think that's when we really love others. Is when we learn to seek the happiness of someone else, to seek someone else's joy as if it were our own joy. I think that's when we're really, really caring about someone. And that's what Moses is doing here. He's caring deeply for the people. And he's not going to go to the promised land until God gives himself to the people also. Until everyone gets to know this great and glorious God. My prayer is that we would be likewise in our evangelism. That it would hurt our hearts that there are people who haven't heard the gospel. Who don't get to know the happiness, the joy of God's presence. I also wonder, uh, Moses doesn't want to move without God's presence. I, I wonder about us uh, as a church. Do all of our ministries depend upon the presence of God? Like, does everything we do as a church depend upon God to happen? Dr. Marita warns us. He writes this, We must not rely on methods, money, or marketing, but rather on God's mighty presence to accomplish the mission God has entrusted to us. We need God's presence to reach other nations, plant churches, care for orphans, parent our children, live as godly husbands and wives, and everything else. We must have God. Perhaps the greatest problem with the church today is the attempt to do the work of God apart from the presence of God, apart from the power of God. We must say together, Lord, we do not want to go another step without you. My hope is that we would be a people who depend on and delight in the presence of God among us. Moses continues his prayer for the people in verse 16. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor in your sight unless you go with us? 
I and your people will be distinguished by your presence from all the other people on the face of the earth. This, this is the clincher. Moses is good. He learns. He's a quick learner. If you remember in chapter 32, it was this same argument, this same appeal that earned him God's favor. Right? God's reputation among the nations is a, a big deal. Moses says, basically, if your presence is not with us, then no one will know that we are special. They'll think you just saved us out of Israel to kill us in the mountains. Or out of Israel, out of Egypt to kill us in the mountains. Remember, we've said the whole book of Exodus in a sentence is about God working sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory. What's at stake in removing his presence from the people is his glory among the nations. Israel is supposed to be functioning as a display of that glory. They're supposed to be distinguished by holy living, that is living together with God in his presence, as God would have them. And without God's presence, Israel will be like everyone else. They'll be Superman without his powers. A guy with nothing more than an interesting moniker. What distinguished Israel, what makes them special, wasn't their land. They didn't have it yet. It's not their wealth. They were freed slaves. It wasn't their culture. It wasn't fully developed. It's not their righteousness. They'd just been bowing down to idols. What makes Israel special is their relationship with God. God's presence among his people is what makes them special. His presence among his people is what makes his people and, more importantly, him look glorious to the world. God responds to Moses in verse 17. I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor. Favor is kind of the Old Testament word for grace. You can translate it grace. Some of your translations might do that. I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So why does God decide to go with all of his people? Why will this sinful people get to connect with the sinless God? Because of God's love for his mediator. Look at verse 17 again. This is the reason God's going to go with Israel. Read it. Read it silently for a second. He goes with the people because of his love for his mediator. Moses is favored by God. Yahweh knows him by name. God is pleased with Moses and will present with the, he will be present with the people for Moses' sake. God did this so that we would understand the basis of our salvation. We cannot be saved by what we have done. No one can. We are too sinful to merit salvation. How can we be saved? Our salvation depends on the pleasure God takes in our mediator that is to say our salvation rests on the delight that god takes in the person of his son and our savior jesus christ not good things that we do right i think part of beginning to understand and grasp the gospel is that you realize doing good things doesn't save you it's only christ we're saved on the basis of God's love for our mediator. 
Jesus stands before God and secures his presence for us in prayer. Jesus is the one that's able to bring us into God's presence, a presence that should destroy sinners like us because he became our sin and was destroyed for us. Jesus purchased for us, his people, the truly good life. That's everlasting life together with God by giving up his life for us. Jesus' work guarantees that God is with us and within us, that he will never leave us or forsake us because he will be with us wherever we go. This is the promise of the gospel. The beautiful truth of the gospel wakes us up from the nightmare of sin. At the front end, we talked about having a nightmare of loss wherein you're cut off from someone that you love. Now, if you're like me and you've had these types of bad dreams, you've also come to almost be thankful for them. Not because they terrify you, but because of the deep sense of gratitude and joy you find upon waking up from them. It was only a dream, you say. I mean, when you wake up from a bad dream wherein you lost your husband or wife, son or daughter, mother or father, you can't help but hug your wife or husband, son or daughter, mother or father a little bit tighter when you wake up in the morning. This is what the gospel does. It takes the real brokenness of our world, its real evil, our real pains, and our real sufferings, and it makes them small and temporary losses that increase our joy when the morning comes. See, Jesus is so good and so big that he reduces the real and terrible losses of this world to nothing more than a bad dream. When Christ returns to make all things new, he is going to undo evil. He's going to make everything sad, untrue. And our redeemed world is going to somehow be better for having once been lost. Our embrace in the Father's arms is going to be sweeter and more satisfying because we know what it is like to be cut off from that embrace. Our happiness in God's presence and our satisfaction of knowing Him and knowing Him is going to be deeper because of how God is redeeming even the evil things in this world. He's sovereign over all. Everything serves His purpose. The winds confess Him as Lord and the mountains bend their knees in submission to His kingship. In Exodus 33, we see that Israel's nightmare is only temporary and that they get to return to the joy of God's presence because of their mediator. Church, the nightmare of sin is only temporary and our mediator is greater than Moses. He's the light of the world. He's illumined our hearts so that even now, in the midst of the night, we might know God, get a taste of the happiness of heaven, and wait for the dawn of the morning. Don't be discouraged. Jesus is coming soon to bring the joy of the morning in its fullness. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that happiness is found only in you and in your presence. Pray that you would help us to honor you and to love you as our greatest treasure, to desire you. Father, we thank you that Paul's words are true, that our momentary light affliction is producing for us an incomparable weight of glory, that it's just beyond all comparison, so that we don't have to focus on what is seen, but we can focus on what is unseen, knowing that what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. Father, we thank you that relationship with you is what we were made for. It's what makes life worth living. Relationship with you is the only thing that can bring us true and enduring joy. It's the only thing that can give us deep and lasting satisfaction. Father, help us to remind ourselves of this truth. Preach this gospel to us by your Holy Spirit who lives within us daily. Keep us in your love. Hold us in your hand. Help us to never tire of being embraced in your arms, of living life in your presence. We were made to know you and be known by you. Father, help us to know to your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.